Hello and welcome to Technicast, a podcast showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. I'm Isabel Sykes, and today I'm bringing you the next episode in our Narratives of Nations series. First, we'll be hearing from Gareth Hughes, a Techni student at Royal Holloway. Gareth's work in the field of translingual studies explores the experimental, playful and disruptive nature of exophonic poetry, that is, poetry that is written in a language that's not native to the writer. In the interview that follows, Gareth shares more about the potential of this experimental poetry to disrupt traditional boundaries of nationhood and imagine new forms of transnational community and communication. I'll hand over to Gareth now and speak to you after. In May of this year, 2023, a group of dismayed linguists, Les Linguistes Atterrés, published a pamphlet entitled Le Français va très bien, merci. French is doing just fine, thank you. This collective of academics from universities across the French-speaking world seek to dispel several popular myths. No, they assert, French doesn't belong to France. It is spoken by many peoples across many countries, not just the French. No, French has not been invaded by the English language. It coexists alongside it. And no, written French is not under attack from text-speak, emojis, and other digital forms of writing. These have developed in lockstep with the communication technologies that have proliferated over recent years. Making sense of the pace of change clearly taps into wider discussions surrounding the future of French identity and culture. While all nations have their own ways, be they explicit or subtle, of policing the use of their languages, it isn't entirely unfair to suggest that France as a nation defends what it sees as its own tongue with a particular zeal. So the linguists are right to challenge preconceptions and stem the moral panic. But their scope is often trained on what they call current use of language, which also comes with an aversion to literature. For them, it's the preserve of the stuffy elites. This is where I lay my cards on the table. I'm not a linguistic scientist, I'm a literary scholar. I study texts, those uses of language that tap into the past, speak to our present, and speculate about the future. In my research, I look at how contemporary poetry creates spaces for reshaping the ways we look at the world. And in this Technicast series on the narratives of nation, I'd like to suggest that poetic innovation loosens the bind between nationality and language, and it plays a crucial role in shaping the space we live in. How we conceive of the world around us can be changed through contact with poetry. In this episode, I'd like to focus on one writer in particular, Michel Metay. Over several decades, she has developed a creative practice that makes use of many different types of media. She combines words, images, and sounds in ways that push the boundaries of traditional poetic forms. Born in 1950 in Paris, she studied both German and Chinese language and literature. In the 1970s, Mitai joined the Ulipo, 
short for Ouvoir de Littérature Potentielle, or Workshop of Potential Literature. The Ulipo Group is known for its experimental and playful approach to literature, often using mathematical constraints, algorithms, and arbitrary rules to create new works. Some well-known examples of their output include Raymond Queneau's 100,000 Billion Poems, a collection of just 10 sonnets, but whose lines are all interchangeable, and Georges Perec's novel La Disparition, which he wrote without using the letter E. This is what potential literature looks like. The underlying concept is just as important as the resulting text, because it provides a basis for generating novel combinations of words. It also makes the reader a more active participant in the text, allowing them to assemble their own poems, or become a sleuth searching for missing letters. Meitai's involvement with the Ulipo greatly influenced her writing style. She has, however, parted ways with the group since then, and developed her own distinctive experimental approach that encompasses spoken word, art installations, and sound poetry. Perhaps her most well-known work is the open-ended and effectively infinite poem Compliment de Nom, Noun Compliments. It unfolds by continuously linking words using the preposition du, of the, resulting in lines like this. The delta of the accumulation of the deposits of the mouth of the river of the confluence of the junction and so on. In effect, any noun could be placed upon this conveyor belt of language. One section of the poem has been published under the title Le cours du Danube, the course of the Danube. Mintai includes a line for every kilometre of the river, 2,888 in total. Over this distance, the Danube flows through a dozen different countries, and is actually known by many different names. By making this transnational body of water an emblem of the poem itself, Metai draws attention to how words can easily slip across borders and flow between languages. In this sense, words are always on the move, and in a slightly enigmatic statement during an interview, Metai says, the projection of the word into space represents the ultimate stage of writing. What does she mean by this? In one sense, that writing is no longer confined to the page. Of course, the internet is proof of that. Most of the words we read now reach us as hypertext on screens underpinned by coding. But in another sense, I read this statement as an ambition for poetry in the 21st century, to unleash words into the world where as many people as possible could interact with them. Place and space are significant themes for Meitai, and this leads us to her interest in maps. As geographers know, maps are made to serve purposes, often to consolidate power and control over regions. But what happens when the map becomes deranged? Meitai likes to rearrange place names according to similarities in their spelling or sounds. She calls this topographic poetry, and through this we encounter a redistribution of the world we had mapped out in our heads, encountering it anew. 
One such example is the Earth's Horizons panorama, written during a short residence in Marseille. In the book, she writes according to constraints, 24 lines per page, each containing 48 characters. Each page is a kind of close-up on a fragment of the urban landscape of Marseille, showing the linguistic and geographic diversity of the region, and uncovering forgotten forms of expression. Her fascination for digging up the past is further demonstrated by the way the poem tells the chaotic and multi-layered history and prehistory that brought modern-day Marseille into existence. The text resembles the piling up of sediments beneath the city and the building up of an urban landscape over time, as we see in the following extract. Taken by plunging perspectives, where imaginables abscond, losing acuity no sooner than the eye and its annexes wandering the quadrillage testify to a chain of coincidence to which a survey imparts a legend so that local equidistances beneath the cross-hatching of diminutions of the intersection of bituminous segments connected across beams and shrinking solidarity with steps shaped by doubly staged stairways whose ramps run straight to the heart of rotaries underscoring a division in the measurements of degrees toward the alley leading to an area even more burdened by roads saturated with a squeezing urbanization where wandering in pursuit of its most intimate impasses keeps rage on walls largely confined onto cracking expanses to the pinion when the framing of rights imposes cavalier visuals that read symmetrical as optics of a reticular illusion projected on labyrinth devised to plant milestones in the agglomeration of the expiring texture of a cadastral map which reveals nevertheless solidly agrarian land whose cadastral parcels must be exactly located before sketching out the plan for approaching even more scrupulously the purity of a city without a name. This is just an extract from the long run-on sentence that makes up the text of The Earth's Horizons. Interestingly, Marcella Durand, the translator of this poem into English, found that some of the words act like fossils buried in the layers of text. Words like quadrillage or cadastral have meanings that got lost somewhere far back in time, and to encounter them is to cross wide expanses of time and space. There is a parallel here between the strata of rocks and the layering of language. The book also features strained collages, showing map fragments rendered as visual poems. The overall effect presents the port city of Marseille as not just a point of entry and departure, but as Metai explains, a place that is situated at the point of contact between the lithosphere, the atmosphere, and the hydrosphere. The poem intertwines the processes at work in the rock, sky, and sea, some that happened millions of years ago, and others that are taking place right now, to create a multifaceted portrait of a city situated at the in-between of things. If the result of Metai's experiments is a poetry that bridges vast spans of time and space, 
then perhaps this reflects our sense of an expanding world. From this perspective, I read in Metai's work a response to the homogenizing influence of globalization. How can we imagine a world beyond the model of global capitalism? One French philosopher, the late Jean-Luc Nancy, describes the process of globalization as the suppression of all world-forming of the world. In other words, attempts to connect everything under one system, one language, one way of making sense, contradicts the very idea of a world. For Nancy, the perspective offered by globalization leads to an unworld. It no longer makes sense as a world by definition, that is to say, a diverse, ever-shifting cosmos. And to continue in this vein is nothing other than to head towards, I quote, an unprecedented geopolitical, economic, and ecological catastrophe. To counteract this paradox of globalization shrinking the world, we need to divert our attention to interactions between different cultures and knowledge systems. Metai does this expertly in her book, Wild Geese Returning. It results from her doctoral research on Chinese reversible poetry, an ancient form which plays with the possibility of reading in different directions, empowering the reader to make their own pathways through a text. The centerpiece of the book is a work entitled The Map of the Armillary Sphere, created by Su Hui, a woman poet from the 4th century. Woven in a pattern on a brocade, it consists of 840 characters in Wenyan, a classical Chinese language, arranged in a grid. Both the pattern and the nature of the language itself enable the text to be read in multiple ways. For example, one block read vertically from the upper right gives the following poem. The cold year is recognizable in the dead pines. Of true things, one knows the end and the beginning. The depressed look deforms a beautiful face. The virtuous sage is distinguished from the wandering literati. The same block read right to left from the bottom goes a little differently. In the pine that wastes away, one recognizes the cold of the year. From the beginning to the end, one knows the truth of things. The beauty of a face is transformed by the despondency of the look. The literati who leaves wanders far from the virtue of the sage. The reversibility of these poems allows for many interpretations, but also creates a cyclical effect. Like the wild geese who migrate and return every year, the world presents patterns to us that speak of continuity. But every culture sees the world in a different way. An analysis by Zhaofan Amy Lee asserts that Mitai's engagement with these poems produces a culturally egalitarian encounter, where through contact with Wenyan via translated poetry, the French language undergoes a transformation in turn. And I must add that we're experiencing these poems at two removes. I just read Jodie Gladding's English translations of Metai's French versions of Su Hui's 
classical Chinese original. New expressions and possibilities are produced in this way. Likewise, when writing Le cours du Danube, Metai took inspiration from how the German language can stack words on top of each other, forming extremely long nouns. Her poetry shows that the way we can make sense, that is, generate new meanings and ideas, is through spaces of encounter with other languages. To return to the French language and the dismayed linguist's defence of its changing wordscape, it becomes clear that the ecosystem of French is under threat not from outside, but from those who seek to limit the uses of the language. Policing it too zealously inhibits poesis, creation, the meaning-making which is essential for building the world anew. Clearly Metai does not see the intermingling of languages as a threat, but as an influence to be embraced that offers a window to an expanded view of the world. I might yet convince the dismayed linguists to not despair of literature. But I think we agree that for French to remain vital and relevant, it has to change and be open to transformations. And to explore the spaces that poetry can open up, where words undergo transformations, is to resist a limited conception of what the French language can do. Thank you for listening. You can find references to the works I cited in the show notes. I'd like to thank Eric Robertson, Adam Razvi, Zhaofan Amy Lee, Paula Jimenez Marchante, Andrew Strangeway, and Rose Eagle Hull for their help in creating this podcast. Thanks again for sending in the talk. Um, I'm really excited to hear what people think about it. Um, I really enjoyed listening to it and I've got lots to ask. So if you're ready, I'll just crack on. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask was, um, I know in your talk you were saying you're not a linguist, you come from a, a literary background. So I just wanted to ask what drew you into the field of translingual studies? Like, was that an interest that grew out of work from poetry or did it come from something else? Um, the, through poetry, I um, think uh, when I started my master's um, in narrative literature, um, that really sort of opened up for me in terms of not just French poetry, but how French poetry might interact with other languages and other literary cultures and traditions. So that was certainly um, like a, the kind of point where things started opening up for me and I wanted to sort of make connections across languages and not just, not solely focus on, on the French language. But I, I guess now when I talk about my my work, I say I'm I'm studying contemporary French and multilingual poetry.
Yeah, I find that a lot with um, techne scholars in general. Everyone who I speak to seems to, um, in a really nice way, have multiple disciplines going on at once. And I feel like common between us is kind of a resistance to put ourselves in boxes of certain subjects. And that's something I really like about um, techne in general. Um, and something that I think links to that that you were speaking about in your paper is this idea of um, experiment and play within literature, which I really liked hearing about. And I, I wondered if, coming from a kind of comparative literature background, do you think that it's possible to bring that sense of play to kind of our readings of conventional classical literature? Or is it solely within the sort of... Um, the specific texts and and the poets that you mentioned that you think that really comes out like is there a way that yeah that we can bring play into kind of conventional literary studies yeah absolutely and i think we kind of have to in order to reinvigorate those um uh you know the the stories that we um i guess grown up listening to and how to adapt them to new circumstances I, I really think that yeah the sort of spirit of play is something that's very important for um i guess revitalizing literature um and one way i see that i guess is through translation so um when a uh, an author might you know let's say do a new translation of um the odyssey or um Greek myths and um, those um, say the they can come from different perspectives there's been I guess lately there's been quite a few new retellings of Greek mythology and especially from uh, women's perspectives in those stories so I think that's a really sort of exciting and vital part of bringing that old those old texts back into the new and i guess i also look at that um uh in some of the poets that i'm studying too and they're very aware of this and how 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 we can take older texts and i guess yeah cut them up and adapt them or um play with them in different ways so um one example would be um uh caroline bergval is one of the poets that i'm working on as well as michel metai and um bergval um does uh lots of creative things with translation and uh taking the text that other people have written and um let's say putting a new putting it in a new frame or in a new context um and one example is her poem via which uh is made up of all these uh translations treated versions of dante's inferno but just the first three lines and she she sort of lists them all by translator and who translated them into english uh, but it, it just creates this sort of effective repetition and reiteration that um the these three lines in italian in the original italian can generate lots of different possibilities um uh in english and lots of possible translations so i guess that's 
what intrigues me about translation is that um, it offers a way of you know, shifting meaning in very small, subtle ways sometimes, but they can accumulate in the larger, broader um, perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I wonder, like, if you have any kind of, I suppose, I suppose, tips and advice, just because like a lot of I know, a lot of the writers you're talking about in your paper and who you discussed just then, because they uh, experiment so much with kind of form and language, I think those texts can sometimes seem intimidating to people. I know, it does to me, I remember the first um the first book I studied on my English literature masters was House of Leaves by um, Mark Danielewski. I don't know if you've read it, but it's basically this huge, huge novel. But every single page is, some of them only have one word on, some of them are written upside down. Some of them are like in the shape of like a corridor or a building. And it's just this, I think they were making a point of making us study this in the first week because they were like, you know, this course is going to be, um, we're going to be looking at. Uh, text that experiment with form and I just remember thinking I am not equipped to deal with this like this is just it seemed really inaccessible to me so I, I wondered like if you had any thoughts on the kind of potential that that those kind of texts can just look a bit intimidating to kind of um, scholars who are used to reading traditional just writing on the page that that, that text you just mentioned sounds really uh, amazing I'd love to Love to leaf through you that. You can have it if leaves. you want. I've still got yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd love to take a look. Um, I guess, um, yeah, these these sorts of experimental works, when you let's say when you first open those pages, can seem very intimidating. And um, the the one that I mentioned in my paper, um, the Earth's Horizons Panorama. Um, it, uh, it instantly sort of, um, I guess, um, makes you feel like, oh, this is something new and something I really encountered before. Um, there's no punctuation. Um, it just seems to be one big long sentence and I'm not entirely sure where it ends or begins. Um, and I think, yeah, coming, coming up against that, um, can be a bit intimidating um, when, um, yeah, yeah, you can feel almost like a sort of stranger to this sort of style, and oh, I don't have the the pre prerequisite knowledge. Um, so maybe a tip would be to maybe try and leave those expectations at the door and um, uh, realize that the the author is pretty much just as interested in what you have to bring to the text and how you're going to interact with it. Um, and they're saying that it's not, uh, there's no one correct way of um, interacting with this object, which is the book. Um, and another thing I would say is that because a lot of the poets I look at um, work with lots of different media so they're not just publishing you know printed poems on paper they're also recording themselves they're performing um they're 
you know, reading their poems out loud and that that often it's quite difficult to distinguish between you know this idea of reading and performance like they they both sort of blend into each other here but um and also through sort of visual art as well and all the collaging that i mentioned too so it's when you look at um the work of let's say Michel Metay or Caroline Bergval or Christophe Tarkos um or Anne James Chaton um the four poets that i'm looking at you there are multiple different ways into their work and there's no right way of um you know approaching it it's like oh where do i start well um you could start by listening to their voice you could watch a video on youtube of christoph tarkos uh, reading his poetry you could go to an exhibition and um see uh caroline bergval's show i don't think she has one on at the moment but she she does a lot of sort of sound installations really sort of interactive intriguing stuff so i think we have to move away from the idea that poetry and in order to be interested in this experimental poetry you have to you have to have encountered it through the book like the book isn't necessarily the original it's not necessarily the origin of the work the work might have started as um uh a, a recording or a podcast or a piece of visual art so i guess there are multiple ways into into their work yeah i really like that idea of of poetry being um kind of multimedia i think just even when it's not experimental a poem can sometimes seem um kind of inaccessible to some people and yeah I like that idea that you can enter it through lots of different venues like through listening or watching um and and I wanted to ask a little bit more about this kind of um the incorporation of like audio and visual media in the in the work that you study and um yeah I wondered if you could say a bit more about how that features is that going to feature in your own work um this kind of the kind of multimedia aspect um or is that just something that you're studying like in the work of others well i think when i first started off the project i sort of conceived of it as quite a sort of traditional sort of literary analysis um and that was what i was going to do for the next three and a half years but i feel very lucky to be um part of techne where i'm surrounded by other uh, students who are a lot of whom are sort of working on practice based um projects and they're bringing their own creativity into those into those um big projects so that's something that i find quite inspiring around me and and has increased my appetite to try and experiment myself with with these forms of writing if i'm studying experimental writing forms then it it almost naturally leads on to me experimenting with the form myself so i'm still not sure whether that will whether there'll be uh room for that in the thesis but even doing this podcast and talking about my work in different arenas on different platforms is already part of this creative side to things 
That's great. I re- I really like that. Um, yeah, that like even if it doesn't bring it, even if it doesn't get incorporated into the thesis, you have found like other creative outlets that have been inspired by your um, subject matter and through other people in Techni as well. That's I definitely um, I really agree that a lot of people's work in Techni is inspiring in the kind of practice based sense yeah I really relate to that feeling of um feeling inspired to kind of just push the boundaries a bit more of a sort of traditional um written thesis I really agree with that and I think that the I I guess it just shows that there's more than one way of expressing your expertise um rather than just the traditional thesis format and maybe I suppose in a way that it might make poetry less intimidating. It can make PhD studies a little less kind of a sort of brick wall of intimidating scholarship. Exactly. Um, there was, um, at the last Techne Congress, um, there was a session on poetry led by Bryony Hughes, and uh, she did a sort of recycling um, fragments um uh, writing workshop and uh, what happened was that she encouraged people to bring like a, a piece of their thesis like a page uh, maybe an abstract or something and then just sort of tear it up and rearrange it and play with it and um, I guess doing that um, can feel quite uh, transgressive in a way where you, you think oh the my this is this is academic work and it should be sort of cohesive and coherent and in in that mm-hmm. sort of academic style and then it to, to just sort of tear it and start messing around with the the order of the words and um it, it can it can it can sort of rewire how you think about the project yeah and i think this idea of um sort of resisting cohesion like really speaks to I mean, the themes of what you were talking about in your paper, right? Like they're kind of sort of homogenizing effects of you saying like globalization and this kind of the kind of work that you study really resists the sort of molding together um, of language because you're looking at the interrelations between um, sort of different intricate um, identities. And I wanted to ask you if you kind of saw a connection between the sort of world shrinking effects of globalization in terms of language and the sort of general political moment, uh, the kind of world shrinking efforts of the far right in the UK and beyond, anti-immigration politics, politics and, you know, the rise of sort of nationalist politics, Brexit. Is is that, do you see this kind of, um, yeah, homogenizing effects of, of globalization in terms of language mirrored in um, contemporary politics is that something that is on your mind when you're writing about these themes yeah absolutely because I feel that the way that um, language um, is used in you know in a sort of day-to-day context and in the ma- in mass media um, does lead to exclusion and obviously uh, the, the way um the way the media can talk about um, migration at the moment is quite, well, it's, it's very dehumanizing. And I would always, 
in my work try to find where um, writers are resisting that totalizing and dehumanizing um, power that language can can hold and and that's I think that's where I found the this tract by the uh, dismayed linguists that I mentioned in my book um, I found it interesting because it showed that clearly there are lots of ways that the French language is being sort of policed and being um, used to kind of exclude other people. As some people may know that in France, there's an institution called l'Académie Française, which it's a bit like the Oxford English Dictionary, but even more prescriptive about what what words should be used. Or if there's a new word, um, let's say an English word that's come into the French language, they often try to uh, resist it or um, offer an alternative that's more French sounding. And this just sort of perpetuates an idea that, oh, there is a kind of Frenchness that, to the language that should be preserved when it really, this is how languages work, right? They sort of naturally sort of rub up against each other and borrow from each other. And the ways that French is borrowing from English uh, are creative as well as uh, it's not just a sort of copy, cut and paste. Um, like the turns of phrase that um, French people might borrow from English, from the English language, become their own, like sort of gain a life of their own. Um, so I definitely see something kind of liberating about that. But um, yeah, more importantly, I think I think this work can respond to this tendency to um, dehumanize the other, um, and uh, definitely has things to say about what the the nation is and what the what the West is and what Europe is and how um, how we can try and I I guess move away from that very sort of unitary sort of monolithic thinking about a particular place. Um, I'm thinking in particular of, um, well, uh, Metai's long poem, The uh, the Course of the Danube, where it's flowing through uh, lots of different countries and it just tries to include, I guess, everything. Like there's a sort of um, almost like a desire for like an in, an infinite diversity, but then there's also a recognition, um, let's say, in Caroline Bergvall's work of um, how yeah how I guess how can the poetry itself relate to a to the political situation? How 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 can it be relevant to um, let's say the uh, migrant crossings and uh, and the anti-immigration rhetoric. And there's one work of Bergvall's which uh, is called Drift, and um, it talks about um, the refugee crisis in a, in quite a sort of oblique way. She's not trying to um, let's say speak for the refugee not sort of um, making their experience part of, you know, her poem. She's not trying to sort of override the, the other 
the, the a refugee's experience. It's more she's she goes back to an older text, to older texts like seafaring sagas and Norse myths, and um, uses that as a kind of basis to essentially bring us into a into a new space of thinking about the you know these dangerous crossings of the Mediterranean or the Channel to no longer think of them as sort of in in terms of in terms of borders and in terms of um, keeping people out it's more about seeing this space of the sea as a place of exchange of being lost and being in between um, that we really need to examine in order to I guess find a way of finding finding empathy that isn't just ineffectual. Yeah, that exactly. was very insightful. Um, <laughs> th- thanks. Uh, well, I guess I- I'm just aware that the yeah you know, the work that I look at isn't. Um, I don't think it sort of claims to that, that it's going to to change the world. It's not going to change the course of politics and combat the uh, sentiments of the far right. I don't think many people on the far right will be reading experimental poetry, but I I do think that the way that they're trying to point to a space of possibility uh, where, where we could at least imagine things differently and uh, have a more sort of collective experience that is probably the beneficial thing it's it's quite subtle and but it's also it might shift the conversation and we need those sort of moments of being being in that space to uh, in order to change the way we think about uh, these these sorts of crises yeah i definitely think that a really important theme that's kind of definitely the runs through your work seems to be this sort of potential the world building potential of of um poetry and experimental poetry in that yeah like you said it offers the possibility to think about things differently and and disrupt kind of conventional orders and yeah i think that's i think that's a really powerful um aspect of your work so thank you for sharing it with us thanks for having me it's been a pleasure Thank you again to Gareth for this episode. I find his project's emphasis on play and experimentation within poetic form and language really refreshing, and I hope you all enjoyed listening to his talk as much as I did. If you'd like to turn your research into a podcast, please get in touch with us via email at technicaster at gmail.com or on our social media channels. See you next time.